I am seldom at a loss for words, especially for this podcast, because I give a lot of thought to it, and I really want it to be entertaining and captivating. Uh, This episode, though, this episode I have as a guest, Karen Kenny, and I had not met Karen and still have yet to meet her face to face, but I had heard her on Emily Aborn's podcast, the She Built This podcast. And through Emily making the connection, Karen and I got together and recorded a conversation. She's a hoot. And I get the feeling that she would be one of those people that if you walked into a room, you would realize, oh, all eyes are on Karen. And not because she demands it, but because she commands it. Because she is so funny. She is such a storyteller. She is so... She's such a contradiction because she is, she is funny and she is this ball of energy and interesting, but she also cares deeply for people. And the contradiction also comes in when you hear her story. And I say contradiction because I think it's safe to say that if many people had the experience she has had, they may not make the choices to become the kind of person she has become. I hope that that piques your interest. And I hope you really enjoy the conversation with Karen Kenny. Karen, 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 thank you for doing this. Emily, once again, my hat's off to Emily Aborn, who introduced us and suggested that we get together. So let me just ask you, Karen, what is it that you do and why you love doing it? So my journey, I always say, has kind of been like the zigzag. It's been a zigzag path. So where I currently sit, um, I am a spiritual mentor. I am a storyteller and a writer, an author, a speaker podcast host. I've been a certified yoga teacher for over 20 years. I've been vegan for 19 plus years. I am um, a gateless writing instructor. I have been a practitioner and teacher of Thai yoga massage for 12 plus years. So it's like, I often say like the first thing now at this day and age, I'm 52, is that I identify first and foremost as a child of God, as one of God's kids. Um, And then I think the second thing that most feels most naturally mine is a storyteller. Um, And I happen to do it and be helpful, um, helping people to um, tell their stories and revise their stories and start to live from a new place uh, so that they can be in their glory. And this is a process that I use. So, and I, I love to do what I do because you know, there's a line, and, and I can never say it right, Anna Karenna, and it says something like, uh, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, so I apologize, but it's something like, all, all happy families are happy the same way, but all unhappy families are unique in their suffering. Oh, and oh. I feel like a lot of people who I work with, they're mm. often coming to me because there is some sort of suffering of some kind. And even though the details of the stories of suffering might be different, human suffering is universal. 
And having gone through my own, uh, you know, tragedies and traumas and suffering as as a young person and, you know, going on into my teens and my 20s, etc. I just always feel like I always say if you're lucky enough to take the elevator to a higher floor, like if you're lucky enough to get on the elevator and take it up to the penthouse or whatever, you don't stop the car up there. You better send that sucker back down for other people to be able to get on. And I think it's a way of extending love. So I think of what I do in my work is an opportunity to extend love to other people and to help them, to help them find ways to reclaim the fact that their natural inheritance is peace and happiness. And that while suffering, pain, I always say pain is inevitable, this human experience, but suffering, or I would say continuous suffering, we can do something about that. Okay. So without dissecting all of the things that you have identified with and have done, do you feel that the motivation has been consistent. So of all of those things that you've done, have you always been the storyteller too? Have you always been the one who wanted to help others too? Has that been the constant thread throughout all of them? I think so. I mean, I think that I just love, I mean, my love of storytelling, um, you know, comes from when I was a little kid and it all starts with my mother because my mother was a reader. But we were, we were like that, that, you know, low income, like we didn't always have, we needed, but we, there were always books. And one of the reasons why I love libraries so much is I always say that like libraries, like even the playing field for poor kids and Mm -hmm. they open up worlds and wonder and possibility to us. They give us access to knowledge that, um, you know, the, the other kids might have an advantage on us. So I've always loved books. I've always loved words. I've always loved reading and I've always loved storytelling. Let's go back to little Karen, little Karen at the library. So what was it like? I find it fascinating that in today's world, the library the books are not held in such high esteem. It's so much easier to be like, here's the remote, go watch something, make sure it's educational. (laughs) But what did you find when, what world did you walk into when you had the library? So when I went into a library, first of all, I felt safe. Like the first time I walked into a library, I could not believe all the books. Everything about it to me was like, this is so cool. But the first time I ever walked out with like a stack of five books and I just thought, this is the coolest thing ever. So like a whole new world. Yes. You were just exposed to a whole new world. It, it, it just makes you feel like something bigger than you is possible. Something. How has that carried into your life now? So, I mean, I just keep thinking all of the things that you have done, they're pretty substantial. Right. I mean, your focus has been, it sounds like, on building other people up. I actually even have a shirt that says we rise by lifting others. Right. So I've been a a helper for as long as I can remember. Um, Why? I can tell you why. I'll tell you why right now. Number one, in my earliest years, to be helpful kept me safe. To be helpful and to be seen as good kept me safe from my environment. So my stepfather, God bless him, you know, uh, was probably not somebody who should have had kids, right? And we were his stepkids. We weren't his biological kids, but it was kind of like he wanted my mom. And I think we kind of came along with that. 
And so it was an intense environment. There was a lot of like poking and threatening and terror. I mean, really a lot of terror growing up. And what I found is that by being, I call it Cirque du Soleil, I could Cirque du Soleil myself into whatever form was necessary or needed. You know, little kids are always trying to like find cues of safety, right? We're always looking in our environment to where it's safe, right? I learned that to be safe, I could just be good. And then you get rewarded for contorting yourself into whatever makes other people happy. So I think it became a habit being a people pleaser and being a helper because to be good kept me alive, I think in some ways, like, right. But, um, you know, my mother was murdered when I was 12 and she was beaten to death violently and left, left to die on the side of the road. And I always, I guarantee you somewhere in my psyche, I've always wished that I could save her, that I could have helped her, that I could have done like whatever. And it's not that I'm conscious of it. And then over time, you know, I had, again, all that trauma and drama and struggle and suffering. I was picking up on the codes of my people. I was picking up on the unspoken things of my people. But it's not like, you know, the Beva Cleva situation where they're like, we don't lie. It's like, no, oh, right. There's plenty of stuff going on over here. So I slowly, you know, taught myself and figured out through reading the books were my teachers. The books in some ways were my parents. And so learning the things that I learned to help myself get out of my own suffering, I wanted to pass that on to other people and help other people. But it's just really in my DNA and in my nervous system. Okay. I'm going to push back a little bit, but first, before I do, yeah, I'm so sorry that you went through that. Thank you. Um, and I don't believe that it was entirely DNA because it's a choice because there are people who go through trauma and instead of being considerate and thoughtful, they become the island. They become the takers. So maybe your inclination was more so than others, yeah. but you still had to choose it. It still had to be your choice. So well yeah. done. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I'm happiest. I mean, you know, so much of what I do, um, you know, and also I've been meditating on, you know, um, I was a Catholic kid growing up. So, you know, I always loved St. Francis because St. Francis was the patron saint of animals and the patron saint of the environment. And so he used to go out into the woods and he would preach he would preach to his brothers and sisters who were the furry woodland creatures, right? So I see this guy who like goes out into the wood and he's like, hey, and there's this amazing story where he like tames this wolf. Like the village was afraid of this wolf who they thought was going to like eat their children and, and they were going to kill it. And St. Francis is like, hold up, let me go talk to this wolf. And so he goes out and he meets the wolf and he explains to them, you're scaring them and we need you to stop. And I will bring you food. Like you'll be taken care of, right? You don't have to kill any, any humans, right? Snack in the woods, whatever. And I just thought, how cool is this dude, right? Passage meditation is a form of meditation that I use. And I've been meditating on this prayer for over 20 years. And it, it's basically make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. And then he goes on to say, and here's the, here's the kicker. 
Uh, O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be loved as to love, to be understood as to understand, because it's in giving that we receive. Mm. It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. It's in dying to self that we're born to eternal life, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not a particularly religious person, but I am a reverent person. I'm a deeply spiritual person. So for 20 years, I've been meditating on basically, how can I give? But, you know, my, my friend who's a healer who I work with, uh, Marianne C., who's incredibly gifted, she lives in Portugal. She said to me the other day, you happen to get yourself a coping mechanism that actually has been incredibly beneficial to the world. Mm-hmm. And she said, that's it, insightful. That's very insightful. She goes, but it doesn't always benefit you. Right. So that's been the work, right? That's been the work for me is to understand having reverence for my own acts of creativity, for my own time, for uh, making space for what's trying to come through me as well and to, uh, you know, help myself in that way. So then how does that play out and work through the storyteller in you? First of all, we're going to start with you because it sounds like you don't usually start with you. So (laughs) let's start with you. How does the storytelling, as well as all of the other experiences that you've had, show up in your life now? And I don't mean in the careers that you choose and in the way you help other people. I mean, in your life, how are you affected by the, by the experiences you have had? So the, one of the gifts that storytelling has given me in my own life, I'm very quick to identify when I'm telling a story. So here's the thing. So when I, like growing up when I was a kid, I, I don't know if I told you this last time we talked, one time when we talked, but I, you know, we would walk into a room and we'd see somebody that either we were attracted to or repelled by. And the first thing we'd say is like, what's her story? So everything was kind of like in that frame. But also if somebody's behaving in a way, I think that is like, ooh, that's off. Like, what's that about? I always know, oh, there's a story behind that. Yeah. They've been through a thing. They've been through a thing. So everything from me, like literally, I have these two lenses, right? It's like storytelling and spirituality. Those are my, those are my lenses. And so story is one of the things that helps me to forgive people all the time. Perfect example. I'm in I'm driving somewhere and somebody comes out of nowhere like and like cuts me off. Now, younger me. I call her Vicky with two K's from Lawrence. So Vicky with two K's from Lawrence, who's like my shadow self. She would, she'd be like, are you like, what are you, eh, eh, like, what, what are you, what are you, what? like, she, she'd like lose it right back in the day. So impatient, so impatient. <laughs> so, but now I go, I just write a story. I always say this. I say, we're always writing stories about each other all the time. Anyways, how about we start writing them in our own favor and in their favor? So if somebody cuts me off or does something, you know, don't get me wrong. The ego is always the first voice to speak. And she's like, hey, right. And then I go, oh, no, 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 no. Like, what if that person, like, what if they just found out that one of their kids is sick? Or what if they just got cheated on? Or what if they just lost their job? Or So I do this thing where I say, I, here's what I do know. I don't know what made that happen. Am I just going to write a story that this person is always thoughtless and always dangerous and always whatever? I tend to like to tip the scales 
in people's, people's favor. And if I find myself getting um, wicked judgmental, mm. I'm like, that's just a story you're writing. You have zero facts. You have zero facts about that other person. This is what I always say to people. I say, oh, you get triggered? Your button's getting pushed? And we always put the focus on the button pushes. And I'm like, oh, they're pushing your buttons? You're the one with the button. So when there's a story happening, I often look and say, what's my role in this drama that's being acted out? Because we are often the director, the screenwriter, and the uh, the main actor. Yeah, we like to be the star in our own life and and somehow tip the scales in our favor, even if we don't want to admit it about ourselves. No, it makes me think of an experience a friend of mine had some years ago, but she came back from the experience and she kept talking about the stories we tell ourselves. So that's what my work's not, all about. And not even the tales. So it isn't that we're being dishonest, but of course we have the experiences we have and we interpret them. We interpret life based on our experiences. And sometimes we shift things maybe for defensive or protective measures or whatever it might be. So with the trauma that you've experienced and, and the the painful experiences that you have had, you have still chosen, and I know I'm going back to this, but you've still chosen to be the person in the story who is thoughtful and who is caring about others. And I want to revisit that because as you know, I just had a couple of episodes dealing with narcissistic tendencies. Hmm. Uh, and both people like you and people like who have these other tendencies can come from the from very similar yes. experiences and i spent so much time talking to people about these negative tendencies <laughs> it's a beautiful thing to be able to sit down and speak with someone who has chosen not to be the victim mm. but also chosen to be honest about to, to, to look at reality as it is and to choose which way she wanted to go. Mm. At what point in your life did you do that? Because 12 years old, first of all, if you had grown up with a pretty volatile situation, that shapes us. Yeah. It just, and we don't even know it's shaping us because it's our normal. But then to experience what you did with your mom mm. easily could have gone the other way. Yeah. So at what point did you decide I'm just not doing that. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I mean, I, I mean, let's be clear. Like I tried a lot of other things first. Right. So like after, after my mother was killed, you know, nobody really claimed us. There are a lot of it. So, and this is the thing, like, it was like one blow after another. So when I, when I was in like the seventh grade, is when my mother was killed. But what, when I was in seventh grade, I totally looked like a boy. Like I was a tomboy. I looked like a boy till I was like 13 years old. That summer between, my mother died uh, May 7th, 1981. Well, by the time I came back to school, September, 1981, in eighth grade, my boobs had grown, my hair got longer. And it was the first time that boys started to pay attention to me more than like rock'em sock'em robots. Like I was a tough little, I was a tough little tomboy. You know, something happened 
that year and I started to get more attention. And it's totally new to me. And now knowing myself and knowing so much more about trauma, I also understood that my nervous system, as much as I like on some level like the attention, it could not handle the attention. Whatever that combination was, there was a girl in school, Joanne O'Neill, I'll never forget. And Joanne O'Neill um, did not like this new version of me, whatever was happening. And so she threatened me with violence. And she said, I'm going to kick your ass. And up until that point, I had been a rough and tumble kid. But something happened with understanding that my mother had been beaten to death. And then being threatened by this violent act that was, but so I was like, oh my God. And I skipped, I stayed home from school the next day. My uncle tried to like, you know, like help me. And I resigned myself. I'm going to go back to school. But in the meantime, my best friend, Jillian, like talked to her and said, you know, Karen's an incredible girl do you know what she's been through? Like, really? Like, this is what, you, what we're going to, this is going to happen. And so afterwards, she and I actually sat down and she, she's like, it, it was like a 12 year old, 13 year old's version of, I got it wrong. But here's what happened. When I got threatened because of, she didn't like how I was acting. I looked at how I was acting, which now I realize it was, it's that version that you get a lot, like in what I call towny situations or small towns, which is don't you dare think that you're better than us. So you're shining a little too bright is if I had to go back and psychoanalyze, it was, it was probably happening, but it was the first time that I looked and I was like, oh, maybe I'm not being nice. And maybe I'm not being thoughtful, all those things that you, that I now am and that I talked about. And it, it checked me in a way that even though like looking back, I don't like how it was done. It was a humbling experience. And from that time forward here, you want to know how I know it worked is that I, I got voted most attractive, most popular in eighth grade. And I got voted most popular in high school. Mm. Something in me turned that corner. It was also, I think I was so deeply in on my own grief that maybe I wasn't aware. Now, I'm not saying I was never, because trust me, my sister could tell you, people in my life could probably say, oh, there were times when she was really selfish. But I swear to you when I say I was just trying to survive, man. <laughs> like I was just trying to survive and I didn't mean to be mean. So I guess the point I was trying to make is that you said, I chose not to be a victim. And it's like, well, no, I, I played the victim card really well for a long time because I was a pretty good student, you know, like straight A's for a lot of my youth and like A's and B's. And then after my mother died, like my grades went like, Brant. so I'll never forget the first time I always did my homework. So, so um, the first time I didn't hand in my homework for math, my teacher said to me, Oh, sweetheart, it's okay. Because my mother had just been beaten to death, right? So they knew what my trauma was, but some part of that cunning oh. little brain went, ooh, the dead mother card. <laughs> Whenever I need a little excuse, maybe for my behavior, right? It's not, it's not conscious, right. but I learned like, oh, 
But part of why I didn't choose it, I think, is I get tired. I always say like, oh, my God, Lisa, tell me this. Do you ever get to a point sometimes where you are so sick of yourself? Like you wish you could just unzip your own skin and step out of your body. You're like, I am so tired of this pattern, this thought, this this behavior, right? So I think I probably had enough times and I had enough suffering and I, I've never liked the thing about kids with trauma. I say this all the time is we have a really keen sense of injustice. Mm -hmm. And I remember being like four years old around that time and seeing on the TV must've been a PBS special or some sort of New England, I don't know, New England area special on Martin Luther King, civil rights. What was, so that was probably like around 72 or like whatever the thing was. But I just remember seeing white men in uniforms hosing black people. And I remember crying and being like, why are they doing that? That's not nice. Why are they doing Like, I just never understood the cruelty. I was obsessed with animals. I would, I would torture myself watching Wild, Wild World of Kingdom and Jack Cousteau. And they'd be like, and now the tiger approaches the baby gazelle. And I'd be like, no! Run, <laughs> gazelle, run! <laughs> so I just don't, I, here's what I don't like. I do not like bullies. I do not like mean people. I do not like unfairness. I do not like when things don't make sense. I don't like when People with power pick on people who have less power. I don't like when the voiceless get picked on by the people with the voices. Something within me is driven to help. I would like to say, oh, I was just so enlightened and I just always knew. No, it was a process. Mm. Just like grief is a process. Forgiveness is a process. This becoming this version of me was a long process because I tried the drugs and tried the drink. Like I did all, oh, I you did. did. All okay. Oh God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting then. Okay. Because I think that what could happen to people who are listening to everything else is that it could feel a bit of an alienation. Sure. So when you start saying, oh yeah, I also made destructive choices that I learned from and, you know, have shifted from, I think that actually is relatable to a lot of people. So the people who themselves have have suffered from trauma or bullying, whatever. I mean, it's all trauma. It feels like everybody's got some level yeah. of it, right? Yeah. Everybody, everybody. You're yeah, alive. we're not if living. You hear the sound of my voice. You've had trauma, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. So there is hope in the ability to choose, and cool. even if in the choosing you've made bad choices, that doesn't define who you are. You can just choose something else. Oh my God. Thank Yes, of course. I mean, the first time I smoked a cigarette, I was eight years old. The first time I got high and drunk, I was 12 years old, you know, but it wasn't like there was no conscious act of I'm actually trying to feel different or better. It was more curiosity. I just did it all. I started having sex too young, right? I lost my virginity way too young, all those things. And I'm, you know, I look back at it and I think, I'm so glad I found out that that wasn't the answer. (laughs) But how did you do that? So again, for the people who are listening, yes, they may relate to on some level, some of the experiences that you've had, though, as you've already acknowledged, it's going to be different for every family. 
But for a lot of people, they fall into that lane of, we call it self-medication, right? Whatever it is, whatever defensive mechanism, and then they just stay there. So at what point did you start to recognize, this is not really working out the way it was hoping? So I was an athlete my whole life. And then I went to BU. And when I went to BU, part of my work study is I ran the weight room uh, at the Case Athletic Center. And this woman came into the weight room and it was like she was floating on air. It was like she glowed from within. And I was like, and everybody's down there like, like, like I, I weighed like 160 pounds, like squatting deep. Like I was just like, I was like, like I was the thick girl. And here comes like this little fairy. It was like she floated when she walked. And I was like, what's her story? <laughs> I literally just went up to her one day because I ran the weight room and I was like, so who are you? Like, what do you do? Like, I was fascinated by her. And she, you know, was like, oh, and she told me, oh, I do yoga and blah, 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 blah. And um, she came back. She was an old, she was older than me. She was like you know, a couple, like at least 10, 15 years older than me. She came back like a week later and she gave me these couple of sheets of paper stapled together with little stick figures of the primary series of Ashtanga yoga on them. And uh, she said, this is yoga. I still have those papers to this you day. really? To this day, it meant that much to me. When I first started doing yoga, like Paramahansa Yogananda, who's a a great yogi from the East, came over, one of the first yogis to come to the West. He talks about um, what the natural process is when you start to take on spiritual practices like yoga. So the Americans used to come to him and they'd be like, like, I'm not giving up promiscuous sex. Like, I'm not giving up eating animals. I'm not giving up weed. I'm not giving up booze. And he would say, you don't have to. They'd be like, I can still do yoga and do all this. And he'd say, yes. So that's how I found out is I started to do these things. I started to do pranayama and breathing, right? I started to do yoga. I started to pay attention to my body and how I felt. I started to, I started to go more deeply into my own healing and as they all say, doing the work. Mm-hmm. And, and what happened was I would still go to the gym, come out of the gym and <sighs> light up a cancer stick. I would still, I was a bartender. I was a waitress. I was still drinking booze, serving booze, doing all these things until one day it occurred to me. Mm. (laughs) It was like, hey, you might want to take a look at this. Yeah. So the second half of Paramahansa Yogananda's sentences, you don't have to quit doing them. They will naturally start to fall away. Mm. And that's what happened for me. When I decided I've had enough, then I've had enough. Hmm. And I'm like that. I'm like that with people too, though. I will put up with and put up with and put up with. But what am I normally putting up with, Lisa? Let's be honest. What I'm putting up with is myself. I figured out, no, I put up with my behavior of putting up with it. I see. Okay. I got sick of myself showing up like a doormat or being somebody's punching bag or whatever. It wasn't even about them. So when I've decided I've had enough, what I've had enough of is me and my choices. I'm a lifelong learner Mm. and suffering. I always say suffering is a wicked good teacher until you get a better teacher. Mm. And I started getting better teachers and I started to become a better self teacher And I started listening more to my inner teacher. So 
you know, I went to Al-Anon. I had the most annoying sponsor. If you're listening, I still love you. But uh, I, I went, I basically went to Al-Anon for like a year. I pretty much just like dove in, got all the books. And when I would go and go and I would, I would go to my um, Al-Anon sponsor and I'd be like, yeah, but he's doing dun da dun da dun da And she'd go, I don't care. I'd be like, what do you mean you don't care? But he's doing it. And she'd go, yeah, keep the focus on yourself. Keep your eyes on your own paper. It's not about him. It's about you. What's your plan B? And I would get so pissed because my ego had written a story. I had so much proof as to why what they or he or it or she was doing was wrong and it was causing me suffering. And then it occurred to me, like the first time I read A Return to Love by Marion Williamson, and it was the first time somebody had ever said to me, you can choose. You have a choice. You are responsible for your own peace and your own happiness. You get to decide. Your suffering on some level is a choice. Okay, I want to. I want you to say that part again because people aren't going to rewind it. And I think there's great power in that acknowledgement. So that last part about choosing. Could you repeat that? What, yeah. what was the discovery that you made in that book and in the interaction with her? So what she was doing in that book was kind of breaking down what A Course in Miracles says. And number one, it says, you know, you are a child of God, basically. Your natural inheritance is peace and happiness. That is your birthright. It is a given. So I always say, if you're not feeling that, then something has gone wrong. And I was suffering. I mean, I was like 20, probably 22-ish around that age, 23-ish maybe when I picked up that book. Up until that point, remember, the world rewards our suffering. The world in some ways rewards our poor me. It's like, oh, you don't feel good. Let's make some soup. You want to take time off from work. You don't want to go to school. You don't want to do this. Let me take care. We often get rewarded for our victim role. Not always, but often. I agree with that. There is great power even in martyrdom. I've I've come to have to admit, even in my own life, there is great power in being like, well, I just had to me or they made me feel a certain way. And there is usually a pretty nice group of supportive people who are like, oh, oh, well, that's not right. So there is great power in that. Sorry, sorry. Yes, you're 100% right. I 100% agree with what you're saying. And I think that who's going to say to a kid with a dead murdered mother, like, you shouldn't feel bummed, you shouldn't be sad, you shouldn't whatever, right? So, but it was clearly no longer working. The thought processes that I had, the defense mechanism, I had my dukes up so high, the way that I moved through the world, you know, uh, was not working. And so in that book, when I read it, and I literally read like, you have a choice. Your happiness is a choice. Your suffering is a choice. You get to decide. So you better choose. And you choose anyway. I mean, you just do. You choose. Yeah. You can choose to live in the fear and the stagnation and, and like the mental and emotional atrophy <laughs> and be like, well, I can't change. Okay. Well, that's your choice. Or I'm afraid to change because it, it might involve pain. Okay. That's your choice. Or you can say, I want this over here. And the reaching for it is going to cause pain, but I want it enough. It's it's yes. worth the pain, and maybe the pain isn't even all that all that bad when you when you actually do it. Yeah. My yes, yes to everything that you're saying um, around this this thing of change. You know, my sweetie once said something that made me laugh. He said, "Most people just want to keep doing what they're doing, but somehow miraculously have a different outcome." Yes. 
Yeah. And there's a, there's a beautiful uh, and funny and very point. It's like, it's like, it's just like two frames. It's a, it's a comic by um, a Brazilian um, artist. Um, and it's made, it's been made into digital media now, but it's, it's a guy at, at um, it's a guy at a lectern, right? He's got a mic and there's a crowd of people and all you can see is basically the, like from here up on them or whatever. And, or here up maybe. And their eyes are all looking up at him. And he asks the question, who wants change? And all their arms are like up like this. And then the next little frame, same guy, everything's the same. And he just says, who wants to change? And all their eyes are down and all their arms are down. And you just go like, that's it in a nutshell. But that's my work. Like my whole work is like, it's like moving from these stories of, I can't, but you don't understand. Like, you know, I work with people who, you know, there's suffering and grief and forgiveness work and self-loathing work. Like there's all this stuff. My my murdered mother gave me street cred. What I've been able to overcome. Mm. Oh wow! You can't look at me and try to tell me it's not possible. So right, right, right. right. Yeah, I dare you to take that step. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I get it. Right. So forgiving my mother's killer, like doing doing all the work that I've done, like all this stuff. And I'm not saying I'm special. Here's the thing: is you have to be curious enough about what's possible for you. If you should get off the pity pot, if you should stop having you know your victim loop, if you can get out of the victim loop, but you have to be curious enough about. Why do I think what I think? Why do I feel what I feel? Why do I say what I say, do what I do, believe what I believe? Why do why have I come to a place where I've settled that suffering is normal and it's okay and this is how I want to live? We have to be curious. Nobody else can do the work for you. What what a beautiful gift that a mentor does for you is that we save you time. We're like Sherpas who are like, hey, watch out for the crack. Hey, watch out for the hole. This is where you tend to get tired. Take a nap. And this is great clarity. I I am not a coach. Yeah. Nothing like that. But listening to you, it's clear that, yes, there will be work in change. But isn't there so much work in staying in the pain? Oh, my God. Right? I mean, it's not like it's easier. People say, well, you're in your comfort zone. It's hard to leave. And I think it's not comfortable. It's just familiar. It's not comfort. You don't feel comforted being in pain or being the victim or being angry or any of those things. You just know it better. That's all. It's just easier. And it's not even easier. It's just like it's the not, force of I would, least resistance. That's it. It's just I would say know. it's harder. Yeah. So much of what you just said about the work, about the willingness to do the work, coupled with the curiosity, the acknowledgement that, yes, it is work, but okay, <laughs> so it's work, like life is work, all right. Have you heard the, heard of the book, You Are Not a Rock? No. A friend of mine suggested it to me. Um, the premise of it is, okay, so if you, if you want to not feel emotional pain, and so we do what fill in the blank. We drink, we, we do whatever it is to numb the pain. And some yeah. people even have maybe OCD and, and it's all like to- Oh, deal. I had a touch of the OCD. Yeah, yeah. I all to deal with the pain, right? <laughs> so I just want to avoid the, the human reaction of discomfort and pain. And he says, but you are not a rock. <laughs> that would be fine if you were a rock. That oh, would be fine. So- 
And he keeps coming back to it. Pain to painful experiences is not only the normal reaction, but it's the only way through to the other side of the pain. And as you describe your experiences and the decisions that you've made and the efforts that you've made, it keeps making me think of his his book, which I'm not even done with it yet. But that's what it keeps making me think that there are so many things that happen in our life that are absolutely out of our control that do make us victims until we realize we're a victim, at which point we're saying, I think I'm just going to stick with the victim. I think I'm going to do that. So I, uh, this sounds so condescending because who am I to applaud you? But I do applaud you and I am so grateful that you have opted not just your DNA, you have opted to choose otherwise. And now to extend your hand out to other people. It's not a typical reaction. It's not. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I'm getting better at receiving love. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to let that, let that, um, I'm going to swing open the, swing open the, the hot door and let that in. Thank you so much. It's very kind of you to say, and, um, um, I appreciate it so much. You know, I, I think about, um, I laugh because it's not always like super altruistic in the beginning. Right. It's, it's like, right. That recognition of, I did feel victimized. That's the truth. I did. And here's the truth. Let me just say this because spiritual, there's a lot of spiritual bypassing that happens in the spiritual community where we're like, Oh, it's just a mindset shift. Oh, it's just like, uh, get rid of your victim mentality. When we are little kids at the mercy of people bigger than us, we are victims. Absolutely. My mother was the victim of a brutal, violent crime. Yes. And you mentioned bullies. You can, yes. as an adult, yes. be a victim of a bully. You can be. I mean, we are, be. we are victimized. Yes. At some point when we are adults in control of our own faculties and money and how we feed ourselves and dress ourselves and live and make choices. At some point in that journey, my hope for all beings is if we have been a victim, that that stops being our first identifier as, and not, not that we abandon our stories and abandon our dead and, and make what was true untrue. I'm not saying that, but what happened is, and this is my whole point about, I'm going to receive your praise and I want to return and acknowledge the fact that when I read in a return to love that I got a choice, that my suffering was up to me. I just thought on some level, I am sure. Be, I was like, I was a control freak. So when I found out that I could be in control of my own suffering or not, I thought this is amazing. Like I get to decide that was so empowering. Nobody can take your power from you. Nobody can, t and I'm not talking about, like, I always say, like, I understand that there are definitely, right, our, our brothers and sisters of color, LGBT, we do have certain structures and systems where it is totally, Understood. yes, totally okay, understand. clear on that. But I often say, like, in our day-to-day -day exchanges, usually in our own personal relationships and intimate relationships, nobody can make you feel anything, nobody can take your power away, but you sure can give it away. Yes. 
And when I realized that I just kept taking myself out at the knees with this story of poor me, who you are is love. And if who you are is love, then your only gig, your only job while you are here is to extend that love. And when we stop playing small about that, when we, and I don't mean like the opposite of small is big, it's going to be big. I don't mean it like that. When we relevant for sure. Yes. When we stop playing dumb about the truth of who we are, we have so much power. We have so much capacity to forgive and to heal and to love and to come back like a champion. Like there's, yes, this is what we're made of. This is the haughtiness of what we're made of. And to me, I want other people, so much of my work is just helping people to remember who they truly are. Okay. Okay. So I have so many questions, but okay, I'm, I'm going <laughs> this one. Before I ask the question, though, have you heard of Feeling Good, the book Feeling Good? It's an old book. He made this really interesting point. So people will say exactly what you just said. Like, he made me feel this way. So if you were in, if you were around somebody who was clinically insane, straight jacket, <laughs> like walking down the hall and being escorted to their room and they called you wretched names and they don't even know you, you know, would, would you internalize, internalize that? And of course you wouldn't because you'd be like, well, but they're not right. They're unstable. So it is clearly the power we give the words to the one speaking them. It's not the words themselves. It's, it's the power that we give to the person saying these terrible things. Because if both people say the exact same things to us and only one has the impact on us, we're choosing that. That isn't to say that people shouldn't be responsible for the things that they say to us. Should sure. they be kind? Should they be respectful? Of course. But there is so much more power in deciding not to let that kill us, not to let that beat us up. Yeah. Than to just be like, well, it's, they're the reason I'm unhappy. No. <laughs> and, and yes, and I want to play off of what you just said because I love it so much. And it's very similar to what, what I say. If somebody yells out to me, you're blah, 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 you're, you're a, you kill baby seals, like something ridiculous, right? It doesn't hurt because I know it's not true. I don't believe it. But if you have an inkling that you're selfish or you're this or you're mm -hmm. that, and then somebody says it, oh wow, that's that button that gets pushed. But it has to already resonate on some frequency or you have some fear that they might be right. Number one for me. And then number two, it's not just the power and the meaning. I believe this is just my theory. It's not just the power and the meaning that we've given to the person saying the words. It's actually the meaning we've assigned to the words themselves. I agree. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, my very first class as a communications major at Boston University, um, I will never forget the professor saying the message sent is almost never the message received. Oh. So if I say to somebody, I love you, 
But in the past, let's say their mom would say, I love you and then beat them and then get drunk and then not feed them and then whatever. So we have all these filters. So I, I think of us as having, somebody once said it, oh, Linda Tai, who I just had on my show. First and foremost, she's a somatic therapist and a trauma expert and a trauma therapist. And she's so genius. And she says, it's like we have, all, like she called it like battens of like cotton wool all the way around us. And I think that's what's happening. We have all these layers. We have all these layers around us. So somebody can say to you, I love you. And here's what I learned. And here's how I know it's true. Because this was me before. Somebody would say, I love you. This is back in the day, right? Somebody would say, I love you. And I couldn't receive it. First of all, my nervous system would go, oh, and I'd go boop right up out of my body or boop, right up into my head where it felt safe because I could talk about it and figure out and get cognitive, right? I always feel really safe from my neck up. I can get up in my head. And I already had a list of all the reasons why they shouldn't love me. And I would think, you sucker. Not, not consciously, but some part of me would be like, if you only knew, if you only knew who I really was, then you couldn't love me. So it's so interesting. And this is why in the work that I do and just try, me as a friend, me as a friend to people and me in my everyday life, um, I try to pay wicked close attention. And Henry James, the writer says, um, try, I'm paraphrasing, but basically the heartbeat of it is try to be the kind of person upon whom nothing is lost. To pay attention is one of the ways that we show love. And I'm always, I'm always asking, you know, did I communicate that the best way that I could? Not just thinking about my words, but who I'm saying it to and what they've been through and how they think of themselves and perceive themselves. This is what I do. Loving people is my job, man. I think it's all of our jobs. It's just yes. most of us aren't aware of it. When you take pictures, you know, I'm not talking, talking to you like you don't know this. When you take pictures, when Emily Aborn makes a connection, community building is, what, is her, part of her love language, right? You snapping photos, you doing this podcast, me doing my podcast. It's a love letter every week. It is everybody's job, right? Identity and purpose. Who are you? Love. What's your purpose to extend that love? I don't care what your title is. But how much of us have reverence for that job? Yeah. Your gratitude for it. I mean, what a job to have. Uh, right? I'm there to love and to help. That's all of our jobs. And like you said, that word gratitude, it's a get to. You know, in my four-step process, your story to your glory, right? That that third step is to revise, revision, to see with new eyes, to see again, like a writer does. Because we are writing. Your whole life is a story. We should write well and edit often. I have to ask you. First, thank you for sharing so much of your life. Um, even though you've done it before on various podcasts and situations, it's yeah. still remarkably generous of you. So thank you. Um, with all of your background, your experiences, good and bad, choices, mm -hmm. good and bad, mm -hmm. how would you answer the question? 
How do you want to be seen? Like most things that come out of my mouth, it's multi-layered. I think that I started off as a wicked shy kid who mumbled when she talked, couldn't look people in the eye. I didn't want to be seen. For many years, I did not want to be seen. Traumatized kids, kids who live through tough things, to be seen often, like it, in our, it equals death. It equals danger. I tried to be as small as possible. You know, I had no voice. My sister used to um, literally interpret for me. I could not speak for myself. And then that hit that age, like in eighth grade, right, where I started to be seen. And I kind of liked it, I think. But then being seen came with a consequence. It came with a threat of violence, right? It came like, oh, God, like, then we want to be seen. And often at that age, we want to be seen. And it's like, for the wrong reasons because of my body or because of my new shoes or like be seen because I'm so special. Cause that's what the ego loves. Right. So then it becomes like, don't want to be seen kind of like being seen, but it doesn't feel good. And then, then you hit that awkward stage where you care too much about being seen and being seen by others. And so all the focus is like outward, how are they seeing me? And we put so much care on pretending, performing, people pleasing, being all the things to be seen as nice, as good as girls are often instructed to be. And I think now, <laughs> I think now where I'm at, I just kind of think of myself like kind of like a kaleidoscope with like a lot of different facets. And if you turn me this way, you're going to get a little tiny bit different view. And if you turn this way at the hat, the, the, the hat, the thing is always the same. So I think how I really want to be seen is holy for all that I am, for my, for my brilliant, for my genius, for the times when I fell down, the times that I've hurt. I don't want, like I said to my sweetie, we were walking the other day and I said, when I die, I want you to have a party <laughs> and I want you to tell stories, but I don't want to be made into a saint. Tell real stories about me, all the stories because I want to be seen holy, like W-H-O-L. I want to see, be seen holy, and I want to be seen as I really am, which is holy, which is an extension of love, which is love itself, which is an extension of the divine, is one of God's kids. So I want to be seen holy, fully, for all of it, the kaleidoscope of KK, and I want to be seen as holy, which is what where my energy really goes these days. And I don't mean like sanctimoniously pure and whatever. I just mean underneath all of this stuff, underneath the meat puppet, underneath all the stories in the stuff, there lies the, the light of the world that we all are. And because if people see it in me, they just might see it in themselves. You mentioned the kaleidoscope with all of its facets. I think of facets, I think of diamonds. Mm -hmm. You are a treasure. Oh, that just made me want to cry. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for not just taking your time, but for just being such an open person and for choosing to be someone who cares about other people. Thank you. 
thank you <clears throat> and we're back trying to pull it together. <laughs> thank you so much for having me and for reflecting um, back to me some of that light and for um, being a light worker yourself. I think that the work that you do and the way that you, you know, you always say it's interesting. I've listened to a few of your shows and you've said, I'm not a coach or anything and I'm not this and I'm not that. And I always want to say, but Lisa, you really know how to hold space and there's no way you could do the work that you do. Uh, and this isn't like, I'm not tit for tatting. I don't have to be nice to you. I'm just saying like, <laughs> I received what you said fully because it moved, it, like, it moved. Like, I'm hot right now. I'm sweating right now from that, from that compliment. So energetically, I really let that in. But I just want to reflect back to like, um, you know, you are one of the best interviewers and you really, you're like what Henry James says, you know, be the kind of person upon whom nothing is lost. And you have a skill set, which if anybody is listening to this, yeah, take, take whatever you take, <laughs> take whatever you take from listening to me go on and on, but also pay really close attention to what Lisa does, which is you have a skill set that not a lot of people have, which is the ability to listen deeply. It is one of the greatest gifts that we can give to each other. There is nothing, I, 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 I think, to, to bear witness, to pay attention, to create space for another person to be fully seen. It is, it is grace. And you do it so beautifully well. So it has been an honor. It has been an honor uh, to be on your show and to get to talk to you and have fun and and just kind of ping pong, you know, just ping pong back and forth and play this lovely uh, game. And um, well, I'm my, delighted. And my privilege, really. Thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you to Emily again. <laughs> Emily, we love Emily, you. Seriously, Emily. Yeah, she just, you know, <laughs> Emily's funny. When you first meet Emily, it just seems like she's just kind of flitting through life, sharing her beauty and spreading joy. And then you realize there's a lot of work going on to make that happen and to make it look that easy. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So thank you to Emily. And really, thank you to Emily. I love her. And I'm, 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 I'm so happy that we've gotten to talk and connect. Uh, and start, I feel like I've made a new friend, not to not to overstep my familiarity. Thank but. You. Usually, when I spend time with people who are really high energy, I tend to become tired. It's just draining for me. That didn't happen with Karen. I felt like we could we could have talked for a lot longer. And in fact, we did. We talked for a really long time. I edited down not only for the sake of time, but also because the internet being what it is, sometimes, you know, there's lag and there's just all these distractions that I ended up cutting out. Having said that, I would say if, if anything that Karen said piqued your interest, resonated with you, even if it made you feel a bit resistant, just have a conversation with her. Just reach out to her. I mentioned a couple of books in the conversation, and I'm going to make sure that there are links to those books. I also mentioned Emily Aborn of She Built This, and I will absolutely make sure that the link is, is sent back to her. Big thanks to you, Emily, and thank you to Karen. Thank you for taking your time and showing so much of yourself 
in a really vulnerable way. I walked to the store yesterday and today and the majority of people are without masks. I hope that that means that everyone is feeling really safe and I hope everyone is really safe. And I will continue to say even after COVID is just a faint memory, please be safe. Always, always be kind and a huge thank you for listening. Thank you.